Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to uh, have you with us this morning, whether you're uh, online with us today, catching up live, or a bit later on on demand, or whether you're on site with us this morning. It's great to have you here. My name's Chris. I'm the Senior Minister at ABC, and I'm really, really excited to be launching this new series today called Jesus Is. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment, but I want to tell you about one of my heroes this morning. Uh, One of my heroes, and it's a little bit of a sad day to tell you about this hero after yesterday's rugby uh, stuff, and not so sad if you're uh, an Irish supporter or uh, a Scottish supporter today, uh, or um, who else won yesterday? Um, France won yesterday as well, didn't they? So if you're one of those, then, then great. If you're an England, an Italian, or a Welsh supporter, not such a great day to be a rugby fan. But um, I still remember the days of a guy called Sir Clive Woodward. He wasn't Sir then, but he became a Sir afterwards because of his success with the England rugby team. So he took over in the sort of um, uh, late 90s and ultimately led England to a Rugby World Cup success, their only Rugby World Cup success in 2003. And he wrote a book afterwards, which I love. And I have about three copies of this book. And there's lots of bits underlined because not only is it a great story of the England rugby team, it's a great leadership book, by the way. So if you're a leader type person, if you're leading in any way, shape or form, uh, it's got some great leadership lessons uh, in it too. And in fact, I do a teaching session for some other church leaders in other settings on leadership lessons we can learn from Sir Clive Woodward. Uh, And I love it. But the story of uh, Clive Woodward's time with the England rugby team is a really interesting one. Because he arrived at a time, England were, and one might say now, still are, serial underachievers when it comes to rugby, that World Cup uh, win aside, because uh, England have more rugby players than anybody, uh, any other country in the world. And certainly when Clive Woodward took over, England had not had any significant success for a very long time. And Sir Clive Woodward did this amazing thing where he upset the status quo when it came to English rugby. Uh, No English rugby coach had ever wanted an office at rugby headquarters at Twickenham. And he turned up there on his first day asking where his desk and his computer were. And there wasn't such a thing for him. So he insisted on that. He then went on changing and changing and changing things within the English rugby system until he got what he wanted and what he needed to coach a successful winning rugby team. He changed things. He challenged the status quo. He saw input from all sorts of different sources and different people. And often the rugby establishment didn't like it very much. But ultimately it was hugely successful. I love his story and I commend it to you, well worth reading about. Sir Clive Woodward was not scared to change things and challenge things. And I wonder when you think about change or challenge, what that conjures up in your minds. We've been asking a little bit about that on the live chat this morning and people have been uh, coming back and some people have been saying, I get really excited about change. And other people have been saying, sometimes change is really fear inducing. People have been saying, if it's a God-led change, even though I might feel uncomfortable, then maybe I'll happily go along with it. I wonder what images the word change or challenge conjure up in your mind right now. Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it excitement? Is it nervousness? Clive Woodward wasn't scared to change things and challenge the status quo, and he came up against all of those different kinds of reactions and more. Because when you challenge the status quo, or when you change things people often, in their fear and their anxiety, lash out or criticize you 
You may have experienced that. Now, Jesus was a status quo challenger. Jesus was a status quo challenger. He shook things up, particularly in the world of religion. And you don't have to be a Christian to see that Jesus changed stuff. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not sure whether Jesus ever really existed, you can't but fail to notice that Jesus and the stories of Jesus changed our world because our date system changed with Jesus. Our legal systems, our ethics, our morals are all rooted in the status quo challenging Jesus. Our worldviews changed with the arrival of Jesus. And today, this is where we begin this series, looking at who Jesus really was and who Jesus really is. And our goal through this series is to try to shake us all up a little bit with excitement and enthusiasm about who Jesus really was. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you'll find out a little bit more about this Jesus, who we follow, and what he's really like, and what he's all about. And we hope to introduce you through this series to who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and for that to be exciting. And if you are a Christian, we maybe want to challenge some preconceptions that we might carry around sometimes about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And this series is going to take us all the way through to Easter, to the amazing story of what Jesus confronted and changed that first Easter. So today, as I said, we start with Jesus challenging the status quo. And through this, this whole series, we're going to look at one account of Jesus's life that's contained in the New Testament part of the Bible. It was written by a guy called Mark. Now, Mark was not one of Jesus's first disciples, not amongst that group of 12 that he picked, but he was one of Jesus's first followers beyond that group of disciples. And he knew those disciples pretty well. In particular, he knew Peter, Peter, Jesus's disciple, Peter, really well. And Mark wrote his account of the story and the life of Jesus around 60 AD, so still pretty quickly, by historical terms at least, after the life of Jesus. Pretty soon after the life of Jesus, he wrote down these accounts. We think he must have spent a lot of time with Peter and written down a lot of what Peter told him from Peter's eyewitness view of the life of Jesus. He wrote this account in 60 AD, as I said, in Rome. And at the time, Rome was going through this huge persecution of Christians because the emperor was a guy called Nero. And a a great fire swept through Rome. And there were rumors that it was started by Nero, who wanted to kind of clear the decks in Rome so that he could rebuild it in the way he wanted it to be rebuilt. But Nero, to divert attention from himself and these rumors flying around about whether it was really him or not who set this fire that destroyed so much of Rome, he, in turn, placed the blame on the Christians. And he started this great persecution of the Christians in and around Rome. And it was horrible. The stuff they did to the Christians, you couldn't even begin to believe or imagine. And we know all of this because a historian of the the time, a guy called Tacitus, wrote all of this down for us. And there are stories written, historical records written for us by Titus, uh, sorry, by Tacitus about what was going on to these Christians and what Nero was doing to them. So in the midst of all of this turmoil and all of this chaos and all of this destruction and all of this persecution, Mark writes down the account of Jesus's life. 
And you see throughout his book, he reminds people of the suffering that Jesus went through. So in the midst of their suffering, he was reminding them that they had a saviour and a friend who suffered too. He continually reminds people to be encouraged in their faith and to be encouraged by who and what they are following and that they're following the one who defeated death. Mark is also really interesting because he is direct and to the point. There's no messing around with Mark. He had a message and he wanted to get it across. You know, um, modern books, and I've got a few here, you know, modern books particularly if you buy the hardback versions, they have dust covers, don't they? And on the inside of the dust cover, often it tells you a little bit about the book, a summary of the book, or a bit about the author and a summary of the author. So, and on the back often, in this case, there are photos, but often there's a bit about the book and some recommendations on the back. We're used to that in our modern day books. So before we ever even buy it, we know what it's all going to be about. Well, that didn't happen in Mark's day. And that was because they couldn't afford the writing materials. The writing materials, papyrus that they wrote on and the, the, the scrolls that they wrote on and the stuff they wrote with was really expensive. So they couldn't afford to mess around with lovely woolly introductions and prefaces and summaries and acknowledgements and, you know, I love my mum and I'm so grateful to her and all that sort of stuff the authors put. They couldn't mess around with all of that because that would have taken up precious writing materials. So Mark gets straight to the point. Often what they did do, though, writing in ancient times, was the first sentence or two of the thing that they were writing gave a a summary of what it was going to be about, highlighted the key themes that they wanted to, to get across. So look, given all of that, what Mark is doing, there's no kind of flowery introduction, but there is a summary in the very first verse of his account of the life of Jesus about what this is all going to be about. And Mark says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark is straight in and he's saying, this is what this is all going to be about. This is going to be about the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. I don't want this book to be about me. This is not like a biography of me. I don't really even want to mention myself. I don't want to do it. The center of this book, the most important thing I want to get across in this book is the message about Jesus, the Son of God. But he also says this, and I think this is really interesting, and I'd never noticed this until I was prepping for this today. Mark says, the beginning of the good news. So his whole book about the story of Jesus all the way through to the death and resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning of the story of what Jesus is up to. I love that idea, that this is just the beginning Because Jesus has been at work and is still at work way beyond the end of Mark's account of his life. This is just the beginning, Mark says. I mean, he wouldn't have known that there were hundreds and thousands of years of history to come where Jesus was and is still working. This is just the beginning because Jesus is still at work. I love that. So we're going to look today, having introduced the book of Mark, which we're going to use all the way through this series, we're going to look at chapter three of Mark's account. And just to remind you, if you don't know, we write a blog about our sermons, our talks every week that's up on our website. So you can go and find a summary of what we're saying and some questions to discuss it with. And also some links to where you can get the the Bible passage from. And I'd encourage you, if you've got a a Bible app on your phone or a tablet uh, or wherever you are, you've got a paper Bible, 
if you've got one, open it and have a look at Mark chapter 3 and follow along with me. If you haven't, don't worry, because it's all going to appear up here as well. So let's have chapter 3, verse 1 up here. And we're just going to work through a few verses here, bit by bit, and see this story that unfolds uh, from the life of Jesus. Mark says this, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, this starts with this phrase, another time, and gives us a clue as to what Mark is talking about here. Because immediately before this, immediately before this account, we see Jesus stirring up the status quo. And Mark is saying, on another occasion, Jesus did it all over again. He stirred up the status quo again. Because up to this point, uh, Mark has been recording for us how Jesus forgave sins which stirred up the religious crowd because they didn't like it. Uh, He uh, talked about how Jesus challenged the religious authorities. They didn't like that. That was upsetting the status quo. And he talked about doing stuff on the Sabbath day. We'll come back to the Sabbath day and why it was so important in a minute. So Mark is saying here, here's another time where Jesus is getting ready to shake up the status quo, to challenge people, to talk about change. So it says this, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And because Jesus had been shaking up the status quo already, challenging the religious authorities already, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Because when you stir up the status quo, there are people who aren't going to like it. So look, verse 2 says this, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So we've got this scene. It's the Sabbath day. Everybody's gone to worship in the Jewish synagogue. All the Jews are gathered there. A man uh, with a disabled hand is there. And they look to see what Jesus is going to do. The religious authorities, the ones who have been challenged by Jesus, they are watching out for him to see what Jesus will do. See, all they are doing, though, I think this is really interesting... All they're doing, these people who are watching out for Jesus, is they're looking at him. They're not worried about the fella. They're not worried about the guy with the shriveled hand. They're not worried about his suffering or his pain or his angst. All they can do, instead of empathizing with the man, is watch out for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. That's all they're doing. Now, the Sabbath was a big deal. In Jesus' world, in the Jewish world of which Jesus inhabited, the Sabbath was a big deal. It was a, it was a day where they weren't allowed to work. It was a day dedicated to God. It was a badge of Jewishness for people who had been persecuted and killed over so many years for simply being Jewish. It was a national flag that spoke of the freedom that they believed was to come and their hope of release from oppression. It looked back to the story of the creation of the world. It looked back to the great exodus of the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. And it marked those out who kept the Sabbath as God's special people, God's faithful people, and God's hoping people. So it was a big deal. So why does Jesus keep on challenging it then? And we're about to see he's going to do it again in a minute. Well, he challenges it because it has become a weapon. This thing that was supposed to be life-giving and life-enriching and draw people closer to God and be a light that pointed people to God had become a weapon. It had become a stick to beat, beat people with. 
It became a tool uh, where observance was being lauded over other people arrogantly. It no longer spoke of the people of Israel as a light to the world, showing how to live in a relationship with God and the positivity of what that looked like. Instead, it was a way of saying, look how good we are. Whilst you languish in the darkness, look at how good we are. And the rule now mattered more than the reality of the heart of what the rule was intended for, what the guidance about Sabbath was intended for. The rule mattered more than the heart of what went behind it. So Jesus challenges them. Look, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So Jesus now is not prepared to accept the status quo because here is a suffering person standing right in front of him. And Jesus says, this is more important than anything else. So Jesus confronts the status quo. He says to them, are you really saying that serving the rules is more important than helping somebody in need? And by the way, it was the wrong rules. They got the rules totally wrong because you could save lives on the Sabbath. You could help people on the Sabbath. So Jesus has got them here, by the way. Jesus isn't just rolling over and taking this. Jesus has got them. He says, what's in the rules? Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? And they would have had to have gone, well, yeah, it is actually, because those were the rules. Unless you were twisting and manipulating the rules to use them as a weapon. And so that's why they remain silent, because Jesus has got them. So let's move on see what happens next. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. See, Jesus sees love for the man who is in need, but he sees anger for those who are more worried about accusing Jesus, more worried about twisting and bending and manipulating the rules for their own purposes, more angry and frustrated about that than anything else. And this is entirely consistent with the status quo challenging Jesus. Because Jesus loved people. Jesus spoke words of encouragement and healing into people. The only times, really, that Jesus got cross and frustrated with people was with religious people who were manipulating the rules for their own benefit. The religious people who wouldn't see through the heart of what God was asking and demonstrate love and compassion to others. See, contrast what Jesus was angry and frustrated about with what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were angry and frustrated about. See, Jesus is frustrated because they refused to see somebody in need and reach out to them. They were angry and frustrated at what they perceived to be a challenge to their authority to their power and to their hold over people through these rules that they manipulated. Jesus was angry and frustrated with them because of their lack of love and their lack of concern for the individual at the center of this story. He was angry and frustrated because they weren't seeing through their own preconceptions and their own agendas to the human being who was there right in front of them at the center of the action. He saw their stubborn hearts 
He saw their stubborn hearts. Other translations say he saw their hard-heartedness. He saw their hard-heartedness, their stubborn hearts that were stopping them from seeing what God was doing right in front of them. And he was angry and frustrated. So he challenged them. So he challenged the status quo. Now, oftentimes, we can experience this, this kind of frustration and anger at stuff we see going on around us in our world with people in need. I've heard somebody, an author, once describe this as holy discontent. You know, an anger that is in, or a frustration that is in line with what God's heart would be. And often that's a good thing to experience because actually the most world-changing things or community-changing things or people-changing things come out of a discontent that deeply roots itself inside of us. So allowing ourselves to feel a holy discontent, a frustration, an anger even, at stuff that we see that is out of sync with what God would want for our world or for people leads us and drives us to action. And that's a positive thing. So Jesus is deeply distressed and frustrated and angry. And he says this, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So Jesus heals the man knowing that it was going to get him in trouble. Knowing that it was a challenge to the status quo and to those religious leaders who were watching out for an opportunity to get him. But he did it anyway. But he is quite clever. So Jesus does challenge them, but he does it in a way that is going to place them in a difficult position. Because Jesus doesn't prepare anything or mix anything or do anything physical, which in other settings he does do, because he would have known that was, in their minds at least, against the Sabbath law. But it wasn't against the Sabbath law to talk. So instead of mixing anything or doing anything or touching anybody or anything like that, Jesus just says, be healed. Stretch out your hand. And his hand was healed. So now they're in a tough spot. Because they want to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. And Jesus hasn't broken the Sabbath law. He simply speaks and the hand is restored. I think that's brilliant. So Jesus often did this, by the way. He found ways to challenge the status quo that made people feel uncomfortable. But that wasn't abusive or um, insensitive sometimes. So Jesus is kind of going to them, I like this. He's going, I, can imagine, I don't think Jesus actually did this. This is what I'd have done. So let's just make that really clear. So I think the hand is healed and all that kind of stuff. If I was Jesus, I'd have stood there like this. Go on in. <laughs> Go on in. What are you going to do now? That's what I'd have done. But I'm not the son of God, which is good news for everybody. So uh, <laughs> he was showing them up for what their motivations really were. That it was nothing to do with others or their love or their concern for other people. It was simply to do with their own authority and their own power. And their uh, desire to trap Jesus. And they didn't care who got in the way of that. See, this is what happens next. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Herod, uh, Herod Antipas was the ruler, the Roman ruler of the region of the Roman Empire. Well, he wasn't Roman, but he'd been put in charge of the region by the Roman Empire. So he was like the secular authority of the day. So these religious leaders, they go off 
and they start conspiring with Herod. But Herod, by the way, is only really interested in the status quo. That's why Herod tolerated the Pharisees in the first place, because having some kind of religious system in the area that he was governor of just kept everybody in control, really. It meant there was no kind of uprising or, or anything, no breach of the peace as far as he was concerned. So he was interested in the status quo. So he didn't really want much to change, and that's why he got involved in the life and the story of Jesus, uh, and ultimately in his death. These Pharisees, I think this is really interesting, they are so blindly cynical that they're incensed when Jesus does good on the Sabbath and restores and heals on a holy day, but they've got no qualms about going out, plotting death and harm on the very same day with a secular authority. You know that the way that light creates shadows, Jesus' presence sometimes brings out the very worst in people. When we challenge the status quo, sometimes it brings out the worst in people. When we try to stand up and be a light to the world, sometimes it will bring the darkness out in people or in our world. And we're simply following in the footsteps of Jesus when that happens. So how might we go about upsetting the status quo? What status quos need to be upset in your world and in my world? Well, first of all, three things I'm going to suggest we can do to be status, appropriate status quo upsetters. First of all, let's ensure that we aren't blind to the way that God's kingdom burst into the world with the presence of Jesus. This is a kingdom thing that is going on in this story today that goes on throughout the life of Jesus. He doesn't just challenge one or two obscure bits of legalism or of religious practice. Jesus was at the cutting edge of God's new world and new plan for saving humanity. He came to do something new and radical and different, to provide restoration and healing and redemption and freedom from oppression. Let's make sure we as individuals and as a church aren't so blinded by the way we do things or have done things that we fail to see where God's healing and restorative work is taking place and is breaking in. Let's watch out for evidence of the kingdom join, breaking in all around us and let's join in with it. Second thing I want to say is, where's your holy discontent? Where's the thing that burns inside of you about our world that needs changing, appropriately, by the way. What's the thing that burns inside of you that would be in line with God's plan and God's heart? Where has God placed a passion inside of you that gets you righteously frustrated? Live with that. Allow it to burn in you, because that then turns into action. And thirdly, where will you and I stand up against injustice? Where will we speak the truth to power? Where will we refuse to accept the status quo, where the status quo is oppressive and dehumanizing or gets in the way of people encountering the love and the grace and the mercy of God? And right now, of course, we're in the midst of a, of a season in our world where injustice and oppression are rife. And of course, Ukraine is on our hearts and our minds again today. Here are some really practical ways to stand up against that injustice, to challenge what some might think is the status quo or needs to be the status quo, where we can write and challenge those in power 
to do the right thing. We may not be able to pick up a weapon and go and fight on the front line, but there are things that we can do to fight for justice and truth in even that situation. We've seen it, haven't we? With the public campaigns to get big Western companies to pull out of Russia, to stop making profit in that country. We've seen it. McDonald's and Starbucks and whoever else, because of a public campaign, have pulled out. We can write to our MP about the refugee situation. And you know, if you know me at all, you know I don't like talking about politics in sermons and talks from up here. But I do think today's an okay to do that. We need to do more, don't we, as a country and a nation to help those who are having to flee Ukraine right now. So we can write to our MP. And we want to help with all of this. We can pray. And uh, we've created a section overnight on our website uh, called Respond to Ukraine. And if you go there, you can find prayers to pray, including a prayer led by the Archbishop of Canterbury. You can find a letter template that you can download and sign and send to our MP about the refugee situation. You can find out how to give financially to the work that we're involved in through our wonderful friends in Poland who are on uh, the front line of helping people uh, coming out of uh, Ukraine. And I think it was said earlier, already people have given so generously to that. Of course, you can give to the DEC uh, fund that's been set up with partners like Tear Fund. If you would prefer to give financially that way too, of course you can. But we can respond. These can be our ways of standing up against the injustice that's taking place in our world right now. And of course there are other things and there are other situations and there are other projects and there are other people suffering around our world and in our local community too. However God leads you and guides you, I hope that we all will respond to the things God is asking us to do individually and that we'll respond together as a church as well. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, things change when people stand up. You know, God looked down on humanity all those years ago, 2,000 years ago, and said, when he saw the suffering of human beings and the lostness of human beings, it doesn't have to be this way. And he sent his son to stand up and challenge the status quo and say, here's what a life lived with God looks like. We don't have to accept the status quo where the status quo needs challenging. God can change things in and through us and so often does. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the status quo challenging Jesus. We thank you that he looked upon our plight, you looked upon the plight of humanity and said it doesn't have to be this way. And you sent your son to change things. Lord God, help us to follow in the example and the footsteps of Jesus, the status quo challenging Jesus. Help us to stand up against injustice. Help us to stand up and speak the truth to power when we need to do that. And in these days and in these circumstances, Lord God, help us to know how to respond to the great injustices we see in our world around us today. Help us to follow in the footsteps of the status quo challenging Jesus. Help us to break down the walls of oppression and injustice. Help us to break down the walls that would stop people from encountering and experiencing your love. Move, Lord God, we pray in our hearts and stir us to action. 